Welcome to the latest edition of NPM's podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor uh, of New Project Media. Joining me today is Patrick Verdun, the founder of both energy storage developer Vineland Energy and advisory firm Verdun Partners, and formerly a principal of Starwood Energy Group. Patrick, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. Um, and we're happy to have you here. Um, today, we're going to talk about a issue that just gets caught up in the smoke and noise of renewable generation more often than not. And that is the transmission network that's uh, there to support it, you know, whether built, whether it needs to be built, whether it needs to be modernized. Um, it's also, it's crucial, but yet, you know, when you read about it and talk about it, it it's often just sort of, sort of put in the background. I think um, what's really brought attention to it has been more in the Northeast uh, with the latest round of um, rounds of offshore winds auctions that have been there where there's gonna be a clear need for a greenfield offshore to onshore transmission system. Um, investor interest has accelerated rapidly in offshore wind in the US. Uh, you need to look no further than uh, the auction that concluded earlier this week for New York Bight. Uh, where six, uh, six, six acres, areas of acres, got bid a collective $4.37 billion uh, amongst uh, many consortiums. Um, and then uh, also in New Jersey, which drew a lot of interest, um, now uh, do, going through two rounds of solicitation um, and the, the bids and then the transmission that's gonna be behind that. And that's only the tip of the iceberg because the Biden administration wasn't waiting around for anything. Um, you know, while the administration would hive off a lot of green energy incentives into the Build Back Better bill, which is still undecided, um, they did pass uh, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, uh, which among other things passed, uh, sorry, allocated $16 billion in the form of loans, grants, and amends FERC's powers to grant licenses to transmission projects even if state sitting boards veto proposals, as long as it fits within a designated national interest program. I'm going to re-record that paragraph just to no make problem. it clear. But this is only the tip of the iceberg and the Biden administration was not waiting around. While the administration hived off major clean energy incentives into Build Back Better, the $1.2 trillion Infrastructure and Jobs Act still left a few elements behind including allocating $16 billion in the form of loans and grants, along with amending FERC's powers to grant licenses to transmission projects, even if state sitting boards veto the proposals, as long as it fits within a designated national interest program. Patrick, before we get into some of these issues, um, it'd be really great to get sort of your background and experience uh, in sort of uh, encounters with grids and modernization transmission um, through the various generation projects that you worked on. Great, yeah, I'd be happy to talk about that. So I've really had exposure to the transmission grid through two angles. Most recently it's been as a developer who's been looking to put projects on the grid. So going through interconnection processes for some of the projects my company's developing on Long Island, also helping some of our clients with projects in CAISO in California as well in PJM. And so we've really had a front row seat on what's going on in those queues with all the challenges around delays and reorganization of how those queues are organized. So we've had access to visibility into how the transmission grid works and how generation connects to the grid there. 
And prior to that, at the firm I was with before I started uh, Verdunk Partners, I was involved with a number of transmission projects as well. Those are both merchant transmission as well as regulated transmission. And so I've had some experience seeing how those projects get developed and built as well. So really coming at it from both the, the transmission side itself, as well as the generation side and the interconnection side more recently. Excellent. So right now in this country, um, you know, you look at the what's being built versus what needs to be built um, in terms of states and federal push for getting carbon neutral, um, you know, getting off, uh, you know, gas fired and coal fired power generation and it's a renewable generation. And there's a, a large gap between what we have now and what needs to be built down the road. Yeah. Um, just from your broader perspective, you know, where, where do you think the transmission sector is now? And what, how do you think, where do you think it needs to go yeah. uh, to support uh, everything that's coming down yeah. the pipelines in the next decade or so? Absolutely, I think it's a great question. Well, if you, you think about it, right? Generation starts to connect gen with load. And historically, generation was places where you had access to gas, access to coal. And then you took that power and transmitted it down the lines to urban centers primarily, as well as industry. As you make the grid green, a lot of those parameters change, right? You may need to bring transmission into areas that are resource rich from a renewables point of view, where historically there's not been much transmission capacity, places like the Midwest, West Texas, and other areas. And that need is only going to grow. You know, we're all huge fans of distributed gen, and we all believe that local generation is the answer to a lot of questions. But simple fact of the matter is that you cannot produce enough energy locally to meet all the demands in a highly urbanized country, which the United States ultimately is, if you look at where the population centers are. So we're going to need remotely located large-scale generation, no matter what. And as that gets built further and further away from load centers, because you need the open areas to build wind and solar, you're going to have to upgrade and improve the transmission grid. I think that's really the, the basic premise that we can't forget. You're just going to need more of it in order to bring that power from the Midwest, from offshore, from areas where you have the resource into demand centers. If that's the case, then I think we really need to make sure that there's a consensus here um, as a country to enable the construction of that capacity and the upgrade of the existing capacity. Look, I think the federal government has been taking some interesting and important steps to pushing that forward. You know, there is the allocation of 16 billion towards loans and grants. I think that's very valuable. That being said, you know, the US has always solved most of its energy issues and energy problems with private capital. You know, the loan guarantees are welcome and helpful, but I think private capital is ultimately the solution, especially given the scale of the problem. So while I think it's helpful, I think the capital is really not the issue today. I think there's really two other issues that really need to be addressed more carefully. And that is how are you going to site and permit, not just the generation, but also the transmission. And then how are you gonna pay for that? Is it the developer who pays for it? Is it socialized? And how do you organize that? And I think the real areas where we need to make progress on and we're making some slow progress on is figuring out how we make sure that we can actually build the projects from a permitting and siting point of view, and then actually how we pay for them. Those are the real areas where I think we need to focus on. You bring up an interesting point about who is on the hook for it, because I think frequently we do see in our coverage that there are developers that are building transmission you know, alongside their renewable projects. Um, 
but on the other hand, there's a lot, still a lot of smaller developers out there that, you know, I guess, quote unquote, are living the dream. They're building their solar and wind, but, you know, they're, it's not like they're undercapitalized. They just don't have the proper capitalization to, to build both. Um, are you seeing um, any proposals out there to, to sort of streamline the process a little bit more? Like, I don't know, in yeah. the sense of, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, the, the U.S. You know, regulations actually provide for a reasonable framework in which you can compensate the construction of transmission. So you are able to develop a line, and if it's demonstrated that that line is necessary and that form of necessity, you know, depends on where you are and how that's determined, but you can go develop a line and go to FERC and get that asset rate-based. And FERC actually offers, I think, a couple of different mechanisms that are pretty developer friendly. There's obviously the return on equity, which, you know, everybody wants to be a little bit higher. But if you look at it on an international scale, it's actually still pretty reasonable in the United States compared to the returns on equity allowed in Europe and in other markets. So you have FERC that's willing to give developers a reasonable return on equity. That's the first thing. And then there's also certain other mechanisms related to transmission development, such as the recovery of costs incurred during the development and the ability to rate base those costs as well. So interestingly, FERC actually has a number of mechanisms that allow standalone transmission, interstate transmission to be built and be developed. So, and we've seen a number of developers, not, not, not many, but a few successfully build businesses around the development of rate-based transmission. So there are some frameworks there that already work. I think where the challenges lie is there's still a lot of work that needs to be done around the permitting of these projects and making sure that they can actually get built. And there's, again, a couple of well-known examples of projects that made a lot of sense, but failed because of their ability to get permitted. I think that's an area, as we just discussed, where you want to need to, you're going to want to see a little bit more efforts from the federal government to kind of mirror what you're seeing on the natural gas side, which is that you can have federal oversight of permitting. So I think that's really a key area. So I think that the, the financial side, there's actually an existing framework that has shown to work reasonably well. What we just need is better collaboration at the permitting level. And then secondarily, we also need to make sure that the ISOs in which these projects are connected, that they can go through the interconnection process as well. Just you know, stating perhaps the obvious, but transmission lines also need to go through interconnection processes, just like generation. And so as a transmission line developer, you're also faced with many of the challenges that a generation developer is facing and that you need to go through the queue and have to grind your way through those various studies as well. So what I would say is that we have some of the tools already available to incentivize transmission, but there's a couple of roadblocks that we still need to work through, most notably the interconnection process and the setting and permitting processes. Okay, well, why don't we address interconnection and get the Andrew Pound Gorilla <laughs> addressed here? I mean, you know, we've seen with, with PJM now, you know, publicly stating that they're going to take no new applications for a two-year period for interconnection um, as one instance where there's a huge logjam because of all the, the demand out there for renewable projects. Um, and, you, and you get the sense that, um, you know, other ISOs might have be having similar issues. Yeah. Um, how much do you think transmission is contributing to the logjam issue? Yeah. It's, a, it's a great question. Um, there are areas in the, in the country, especially in the Midwest, where the lack of takeaway capacity, in other words, the lack of significant amounts of high voltage lines from generation to load are playing a huge role in the congestion and the curtailment. 
and in the inability to build new generation of those locations. So transmission is absolutely a key part of the story in terms of the queues being gummed up and the delays in, in projects going through that queue process. So transmission needs to be solved. And as long as there's not a proactive approach to solving these transmission issues, you're going to continue to see a lot of issues around the grid and the ability to interconnect renewable projects. You know, to take an example, Texas built the CRES zones, which allowed a lot of transmission to get built and that allowed for generation to get built. So we definitely need a longer lean item, which is building transmission from these resource rich areas to load to happen soon. Separate from that, there are other issues that relate specifically to the interconnection processes themselves, and that might occur even in the presence or in the pre if there's an, enough transmission capacity available. And that really relates to two things. First of all, the, the queue processes when they were developed and approved by FERC were developed to accommodate a couple of dozen projects perhaps per year coming into the queue. You know, if you look at the KISO queue a couple of years ago, there were years where there were just a handful of projects being put into the queue. Those numbers have swelled to being tens, if not, you know, in some cases more than that, projects being put into the queue each year. So the queue processes themselves, the way the study processes are organized, the way the projects are staffed, the availability of team members, all these things are not set up to accommodate hundreds of projects and you know, tens of gigawatts of projects in the queue. So there's a real issue around how do you organize the studying of projects you know, PGM is a good example where they would study projects serially and now they're going to a cluster process and there's a lot of you know, issues around how you convert from one to the other. But the ISOs, just as organizations, as conveyor belts shepherding projects through a queue, were just not set up to accommodate these number of projects. And that's a real issue that needs to be addressed. And so if you look at what's going on, KISO decided to put the pause button. They skipped basically you know, the after cluster 14 in March 2022. They decided to skip this year and cluster 15 is next year. So they basically said, stop, we need an extra year to look at all the stuff that's in the queue and all the stuff that we expect is going to come in the queue in 14, cluster 14, which was a, a, a huge amount. PJM, a little bit later last fall, said the same thing. They said, look, guys, stop. There's too much. We can't keep up. We just need to hit the pause button and put projects either to the fast track, transition cluster one or transition cluster two. And effectively, other states like New York are doing the same thing, perhaps not explicitly, but they're still slowing things down. So you have, I think, a couple of things that need to be addressed. You need to be able to staff up these organizations, make sure they have enough people to handle all these requests. You need to organize the process so that projects can be studied in a way that gives developers comfort that they can get the answers to their upgrade cost questions early enough to make sure that they can make the right decision with regards to development, but also make sure that as projects fall out of the queue that you don't burden other developers with costs that they were not anticipating. So there's a number of ways that you need to reform the queue. And I know there's been a lot of public comment at both FERC and BJM and other ISOs trying to organize that. I don't think there's a, a magic solution. There's no magic wand you can wave here and solve this, but, but ultimately we're gonna have to do it. So there's a, a big issue around fixing the queue process that needs to be addressed. The second issue is, even if you fix that, who pays for the generation or the upgrades that generation causes, right? If you're building a wind farm and you are faced with $500 a, k a kilowatt of upgrade costs, your project may not work. And then the question is, should this be paid by the developer or should it be paid by the grid? In other words, should it be socialized and paid by the rate payer, just like the way high voltage transmission development is paid, or should it be allocated to the developer? And look, there are arguments both ways, right? You, some people might say, well, look, you know, 
it's the developer's job to pick the right spot. And we don't want to incentivize storage in the, or solar storage wind in the wrong spot. So if we give people a free ride, they're just going to build it wherever and not care. Other people say, well, no, look, if we as a society want to reach our renewable goals, we just need to make it feasible for developers to build the projects and have the cost of those upgrades be socialized across the system, which is essentially the way it works in, in many European countries where essentially the upgrade costs are borne by the grid. I think there's valid arguments both ways. I think if the country is serious about building out a lot of renewables, then I think the latter approach, in other words, allocating the costs primarily to the grid, in other words, the ratepayers, is the right way to go. Otherwise, I just think it's going to be very hard for us to get to the levels of renewable generation that we need to see in order to get our goals. What, um, to what impact will, would a rate payer be affected through transmission upgrades? Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't done the math uh, on how much it, it exactly is. Um, you, you might argue that the rate payer is paying for it anyway, because if there's no allocation of costs um, to the grid, the developer has to add it to the project and it gets fed in through higher power prices that are being put on the grid. So one way or another, somebody has to pay for it. Ultimately, it's the purchasers of power that pay for this, whether it's CNI customers or residential customers. Um, I don't have the numbers. It's probably not a ton on a dollar per kilowatt hour basis, but of course, for you know, for some people that could be a meaningful amount of money. And so it'd be interesting to see exactly what the impact is. But 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 regardless, somebody's paying for it anyway. And ultimately the ratepayers do pay for all power at the end of the day. Yeah, that, that's fair. Um, it's just, you know, it's the, the case where you can see it be a, a highly politicized in some areas, you know, depending on this, especially if, it, if it, there is a meaningful impact. Yeah. Um, that, that would certainly certainly be an issue there. Um, let, let's uh, go to California and, and CAISO because they, uh, again, continue to be the, the hive of all things new generation uh, and, and trying new things. And um, they also called recently for uh, $2.9 billion in transmission upgrades. Yeah. Um, and uh, they continue to, again, accelerate without putting their feet on the brakes about the renewable uh, uh, revolution, the energy transition, whatever you might call it. But, you know, they're calling for solar continuing, continuing calls for um, yeah. offshore wind is now starting to take place. Uh, and storage, again, which we believe is going to be one of the bigger stories going forward here, um, you know, continues to be the, the forefront of some of the RFPs that they're putting forward through uh, their CCAs, through um, utilities as well, um, shorter duration, longer duration. Um, you know, these are all part of what California is uh, in the market for right now. Um, where, when Caisa talks about nearly $3 billion in transmission upgrades, um, where do you think this applies within uh, the, the grand scheme of things? Um, where yeah. do they need the most, you know, things like that? Yeah. A great question. Well, first of all, $2.9 billion doesn't get you that far in transmission. So it's yeah, a lot of money. I thought you'd tell me something like that. <laughs> it's a lot of money by anybody's standards, but in, in infrastructure land and in transmission in particular, it's not, it's a lot and it'll move the needle, but it's not going to solve all the problems. So I would see this as a kind of an initial, initial step to try and improve the transmission grid. Look, I think that it's a, California in many ways, whether you like it or not, is a template of how you're going to 
have to change the grid if you want to go green. Like if you want to have meaningful amounts of clean energy across the country, you're going to have to sooner or later address all the issues that California is addressing today. And again, you may not like that policy, you may not like the solutions, but one way or another, there's no way getting around the fact that you're going to have to reinforce the grid. You're going to have to build storage. You're gonna have to build incremental transmission, all kinds of shock absorbers to basically accept this huge amount of variable generation. And you know, Germany is the same thing. And you're seeing again, very similar issues in the European grid, the UK as well. So whatever is happening in California is, or at least the problems that are happening in California are indicative of the problems you're going to see in other parts of the country sooner or later, if you decide to aggressively chase these high renewable portfolio standard goals. Texas, again, has, has done it slightly differently. They've been actually proactive and have built out some of the generation before, sorry, the transmission before the generation. But at the end of the day, they've built a lot of transmission as well. I think that you know, all the states are going to have to get serious about fixing the grid. Um, and we've talked about some of the things that you can do uh, by mobilizing private capital, but the grid operators themselves are gonna have to make sure that they allow for developers to come in and build the needed upgrades. They're gonna have to incentivize the utilities to upgrade the lines that they already own and control. They're gonna basically have to create the mechanisms that allow all these things to happen within a reasonable time frame. Because that's another big thing we don't really talk about much when it comes to transmission and interconnection, it's not just an issue of cost, there's also just an issue of time, right? Everything takes a long time in the utility industry and in transmission, it takes all the longer because of the amount of studies you need to conduct to ensure that the lines are needed, as well as any permitting and siting, which always takes a long time for any linear infrastructure, but certainly for transmission uh, these days. So I think that what you're seeing in California is, is just you know, illustrative. It's, it's, uh, it's an indication of what's gonna happen. And while the 2.9 is, is a great deal of money, it's just, I think, a small amount of that's, that's going to be needed in that whole region to absorb the wind and the solar that you're seeing there right now. Um, getting back to the, uh, the RFPs that are nationwide and, uh, you know, again, starting to proliferate quite a bit, um, thinking about the mid Midwest, uh, some of the southeastern states, um, and uh, of course, the, the West Coast, uh, very active amongst California, yep. Washington, Oregon, those utilities. Have you observed the RFPs uh, incentivizing transmission development or allocating for that? Um, I can't really recall an instance where we like isolated that as an instance. I think what we've been isolating more is how much bigger storage is becoming part of the RFPs, for instance. Um, others are a little bit more open-minded, creating these all-source RFPs, you know, uh, bringing yeah. biomass, things like biomass, and uh, uh, not green hydro, but um, geothermal, and you know, just other forms of, of, of um, you know, less polluting yeah. generation out there. But transmission is something we really don't isolate. But just curious, yeah. if you've seen it. It's interesting. Well, it's a couple of things, right? So. Um, in an all-source RFP, in most cases, technically storage is an uh, transmission is an allowed solution, right? So if you're a utility and you're sharing an all-source RFP to, to, to get new capacity into your service territory, you'll often see that you can bring solar, wind, biomass, gas, storage. And in many cases, you're actually allowed to build in uh, transmission as an option. And in fact, some of the projects that my former company was involved with were actually responses for generation capacity that were then ultimately met by a transmission cable that was backed up by capacity in another RTO, the Neptune line and the Hudson line. So transmission can often be a solution to a local utility's need. 
that in that case, it's the local utility that's actually asking for the capacity. It's different from an RTO saying we need a transmission line that's going to go into rate base that's going to be put into our service territory or in the area that we control. So you kind of have to bifurcate it. You know, I think today what you're seeing is that the cost of transmission is meaningful and the cost of local renewables in a place like the Southeast is going to beat a line. So if you have to build carbon-free generation somewhere else, then build a line to bring it into TVA service territory or other parts of CERC, it's probably much cheaper just to build the solar or the wind or the biomass locally. There's of course exceptions to that, right? I think we saw a recent example of that in New York with the tier four RFP where it actually was feasible to say, you know what, we're going to not build the renewables locally because you, you can't really build that much renewables in zone J, New York City, but we're gonna build it upstate and then we're gonna bring it down through a line into the city, either from Canada, through Champlain Hudson, or from upstate New York through the other line that won the RFP. So in that case, you're seeing you know, transmission being part of the solution to bring in capacity into a certain area. In most cases, when it's a generation RFP uh, or capacity in the broader sense of the word that's being run by a utility that's looking to meet its supply obligations, I'd say in most cases, other than the exceptions like York, you're basically going to see generation beat out transmission just because of the cost advantage. And even though solar has become a little bit pricier in the last couple of months and, and may remain pricier for you know next year or two, the odds are it's always going to be transmission uh, in terms of a cost basis. So you know, the way I think about it is that transmission development is, is going to be critical. I'd say a lot of the transmission uh, transmission is going to be built in response to RTOs. So the regional transmission operators saying, hey, this is a line that's going to connect a number of states, a number of utility service territories. And we're going to allow the developer to build this. And we're going to allow the developer to go to FERC and get a regulated rate of return on that. You know, I'd like to see more of that happening. I think that's a market that private capital can address very effectively. And, and we're fortunate in the country to have a few groups who can do these projects uh, on budget and are willing to read a cost caps because that's another interesting thing. Uh, we're seeing a lot of transmission developers willing to say, you know what, this is what it's gonna cost. And they're on the hook for, for, for making the project work at that number. So I think that's favorable to ratepayers. I'd love to see um, the RTOs and the states um, together to be more proactive in asking independent transmission to come in and provide a solution to the grid um, outside of the utility RFPs, which play a role in the incentivization of generation. And look, I think an area where this could be particularly interesting, and it's, it's illustrative to see that the state of New Jersey has pursued that path where they say, let's create an offshore grid. Let's not tie the cables to the generators in, in the offshore space. Let's have a third party come in and build that offshore grid rate base it or incentivize it through private contracts, bilateral contracts with the offshore wind developers. But we don't need each offshore wind guy to go out and build their own cable and land it in New York or some place along the New Jersey coastline. Let's build a small grid. Uh, well, it's not small, but let's build a, a limited grid to accommodate this offshore wind and let's provide the appropriate incentives to build that on a standalone basis. And uh, Patrick is of course referring to uh, the New Jersey it's Public Utilities Board, um, which Perfect. just said they received over 80 proposals to build exactly what Patrick's describing. Um, I think they're waiting for FERC to uh, give them some guidance on that. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see what, what happens there. Um, let, me, let me ask you something on a, the marriage of private capital is very interesting here. I mean, we've observed a, a few uh, different marriages, uh, namely Blackstone, they, they back um, ATI, uh, and I believe Argo has been a, Argo Infrastructure has been a, a pretty big investor in, in transmission infrastructure in the past. 
Do you think we're going to see uh, more M&A or, or, or sorry, marriages of institutional capital developers along the lines of what we're seeing in solar and wind generation right now? There's more developers out there where there, there needs to be a dance partner or, or there's not a lot of that really. Yeah, I think so. Look, um, there's really no alternative to meaningful to, to, to mobilize a lot of capital other than the private sector and whether that's private sector capital, which comes from the IOUs, the independent, you know, the utilities, the investor yeah. utilities, which even though they're regulated, it's still private capital. These are publicly listed companies, they're not state-owned, uh, not government-sponsored. So, you know, the capital either comes from them or the capital comes from private pools of capital, such as the ones you just mentioned. Um, either way, it's investors who are allocating capital to projects that they deem worthwhile. You know, the utilities as the incumbents in many cases will have a leg up in the sense that they already have a lot of lines. They can ask their local um, regulators for permission to upgrade them. They can expand them. In some cases, that meets, means they have to go through a, an RFP. In some cases, they have the right to do it uh, by themselves. And I think that's one of the tensions between you know, the IOUs and the, 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 the private equity and, and other developers who, who are kind of both fighting for the, the piece of the pie that's ever growing. The good news is it is growing. Um, and so I, I really don't see how this gets done other than through the mobilization of of private capital or investor-owned utility capital. The good news is that money's there, right? Those projects, uh, again, thanks to a lot of the ways FERC incentivizes transmission, can be deployed in a in a, in a positive way, in an accretive way. And I think it's really just a question of can we create enough RFPs from the utilities and the RTOs? Can we make sure that the siting uh, allows for the construction of these projects? And, and make sure that there's just a de-bottlenecking of the whole interconnection process, including the, the process to connect to new transmission. Great. Well, just to sum it up nicely, uh, Patrick, where do you think uh, the transmission landscape's gonna look like over the next uh, 12 months, just in terms of investment? Where, where do you see most of it coming from? Is it gonna yeah. be more from newer, again, greenfield projects? Is it gonna be more modernization, uh, modernizing old grids? And I guess yeah. just to bring it up together, bring it together, I'm gonna to re-record that. I was pausing, okay, re-recording. Sorry, uh, Patrick, to sum it up nicely, um, can you just tell us what the next 12 months are gonna look like, uh, particularly uh, with the um, infrastructure bill approved and 16 billion, you know, where is that allocated? Where do you think that, that plays out and uh, what, what sort of happens next in the landscape in the next year or so? Yeah, well, of course, twelve months, you know, is like is like one month in in, in uh, transmission land, right? Because nothing happens in twelve months in the transmission space. But your your point is valid. So, look, if you look at where the IOUs are projecting a lot of capital spend, and they publish this, and EEI actually does a good job of summarizing it, a lot of money is going to go into upgrading existing transmission. So, a lot of the transmission spend is going to be in upgrading lines, as long as that's you know. And in most cases, that is meant to alleviate constraints and to bring new capacity or allow new generation capacity to come online. I think that's a very positive thing. So the, 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 the quickest way to improve access to the grid is to improve the lines that you have because you're limited you know, permitting requirements and, and, and it's relatively straightforward. So I would encourage you know, all folks who are looking to develop these projects and to upgrade their existing lines to do so because I think that helps the industry. I think that the construction of new lines is a, is a multi-year process and 12 months is just not enough to really move the needle. Um, and so I don't really expect to see much in the next 12 months other than sort of processes that come to an end, right? The, the New York uh, RFP was you know, the, the culmination of nearly a decade of work. 
And right, so you'll right. probably see um, projects come to fruition that were started many years ago and are now kind of being allocated or decided on or getting the green light uh, in the next 12 months. But the, that's stuff that's really been in the works for a couple of years. But in terms of sort of you know, starting to steer the ship, I, you know, I think we'll see more um, allocation to upgrades in the near term. And then hopefully some new projects that get started now that will then you know lead to real projects three, four, five, six, ten 10 years down the road, which you know you gotta start, you gotta start at some point. And it'd be great to see some of that start now. Right. Great. Well, Patrick, that's all the time we have today. Thanks for joining us today in the program. And uh, for NPM listeners, please uh, tune in next time. Work out. Thank you for having me.